Hey, and welcome to another episode of the Abnormal Psychologist podcast. This is your very own abnormal psychologist, Dr. Colby Taylor. I'm an associate professor of behavioral sciences at Christian Brothers University in Memphis, Tennessee, and I'm also a licensed psychologist in the state of Tennessee. Um, I want to wish a belated happy birthday to Joseph Jameson, who recorded the intro music uh, for this podcast. So happy late birthday, Joseph. Um, today's episode is going to be dedicated to pyromania, but before I get into that, um, I want to give sort of an explanation, catch y'all up for why I've been gone for the last three weeks. So we've had a stomach virus sort of burning through the family. Um, Emerson started throwing up and everything. That's my three-year-old daughter, Emerson. Uh, my one-year-old son, Rowan, uh, also got the stomach virus. And so it was, it's been an interesting, um, uh, week or so, past week, uh, filled with bodily fluids and everything. Uh, gross. Uh, I didn't get the stomach virus, which is, thank thank goodness. Um, and I was talking to my mom on the phone, and she was like, uh, when you were little, you never got a single stomach virus. Um, and I've never gotten one as an adult, so maybe I'm immune to stomach viruses. I don't know. Um, everything does go to my lungs, though. I, you might notice I'm a little bit hoarse as I'm talking to you. I used to get like frequent respiratory infections as a child, but have never gotten a stomach virus. And I guess we can make uh, throwing up um, sort of psychologically relevant. Um, I remember when I was a, a school psychologist in my first few years of practice, my first year of practice, actually, um, and I had three or four schools that I would go around to and practice at. And it was about this time of year. I'm recording this episode in November. And schools were having their Christmas programs or holiday programs or whatever they call them. Uh, in which, you know, different classes would get up on stage and they'd sing a holiday song or Christmas song. Um, and the parents would come. They had like punch and milk and cookies. And it was a really festive atmosphere the day or so before they dismissed for their holiday breaks. So I went to this elementary school and, um, you know, all the parents were there and, you know, they had the cookies and the punch. And I got my cookies and punch and sat down. And the little biddies were starting first at this um uh, Christmas pageant, Christmas program, whatever you want to call it. Um, so it was the kindergartners. And uh, they got up on stage to sing Frosty the Snowman or whatever they were singing. And uh, one of these kindergartners has like extreme stage fright, um, which might be social anxiety disorder, um, performance-based subtype. Uh, but anyways, uh, he, he starts throwing up. He starts vomiting. And all of a sudden, um, it, there was a chain reaction of vomiting. Uh, there were probably 20, 25 kindergartners on stage, and they looked at this one little boy that was throwing up, and they just all started throwing up on the stage everywhere. And they couldn't close the curtain on the stage fast enough. Uh, it was just an absolute disaster. And I remember um, just sort of taking my cookies that I had on a napkin and my punch and just like sneaking out the back door because uh, I didn't want to be seen there. I was, you know, I was done with it. Um, so uh, there is sort of a hysterical contagion. Um, to vomiting, right? It can be sort of psychogenic in nature and it can sort of be contagious. Um, and if, if you have sort of a fear of vomiting or if you vomit at the sight of somebody else vomiting, um, it might be called emetophobia. And I guess if you think about contagious vomiting from an evolutionary perspective, it makes sense. If you see, you know, your tribe member vomiting, you might have ingested the same poisonous berries or whatever as they did. So uh, emetophobia makes sense to me. Um, anyways, it is not the focus. Emetophobia is not the focus of today's episode. As I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, we're dedicating this episode to pyromania. 
And this is a mailbag request from Mara or Mara, M-A-R-A. Um, she had emailed in the past, um, and this was probably over the summer, asking if I could dedicate episodes to specific impulse control disorders. And so today's episode is dedicated to pyromania. And in doing research for this episode, I was surprised by how shockingly under-researched pyromania is. Um, there were only a handful of articles out there and books on pyromania that I could find. Um, and it seems like a lot of articles were published in the 1980s and that there hasn't been that much published on pyromania uh, in the past 40 years. Um, it is a DSM-5 uh, disorder. Um, it's part of the disruptive impulse control and conduct disorder family. And I thought I would begin this episode by sort of walking you through the diagnostic criteria in the DSM-5 text revision. Uh, so diagnostic criteria for pyromania includes deliberate and purposeful fire setting on more than one occasion. Um, so you have to be a repeat offender for it to qualify as pyromania. Um, uh, when you're setting this fire, um, there's tension, or before you set the fire, there's tension or effective arousal before the act. I've heard this arousal described as almost sexual in nature by some people. Um, there's a fascination with, interest in, curiosity about, or attraction to fire, and its situational context. And it doesn't just have to be fascination with flames. I don't know why I think about Beavis and Butthead here, but, <laughs> you know, like doing that Beavis and Butthead laugh as you watch something burn. It can also be sort of obsession with fire-related paraphernalia, like lighters or matches. Um, there's pleasure, gratification, or relief when setting fires or when witnessing or participating in their aftermath. And we have to rule out that the fire setting is not being done for monetary gain, so for like insurance fraud purposes, um, as an expression of socio-political ideology. So maybe you're protesting something and you're just like, burn it down. You know, you're burning cars or whatever. Or maybe you're celebrating after a, a Super Bowl win or something. It seems like people are always setting cars on fire um, to celebrate after their team wins a national championship or something. Um, to conceal criminal activity, so if you're trying to burn the evidence, that doesn't count as pyromania. Um, to express anger, anger or vengeance, um, to improve one's living circumstances in response to a delusion or hallucination, or as a result of impaired judgment like a major neurocognitive disorder, maybe like Alzheimer's, intellectual developmental disorder or intellectual disability, or substance intoxication. And then we also want to make sure that the fire setting is not better explained or completely explained by a diagnosis of conduct disorder, um, the presence of a manic episode, or a diagnosis of antisocial personality disorder. So anyways, that's the DSM-5 text revision diagnostic criteria for pyromania. Um, one of the articles that I was reading and prepping for this episode was by Renee Binder, and it was titled Fire Setting, Arson, Pyromania, and the Forensic Mental Health Expert. And in reading this article, I was sort of surprised that most cases of arson are not considered pyromania. In fact, over 90% of cases of arson uh, aren't considered pyromania, which is, which is super interesting. Um, and I guess I should def define what arson is. Um, arson is considered a subtype of fire setting. It's considered a criminal act where one willfully and maliciously sets fire to or aids in fire setting to some sort of structure or property of somebody else. Uh, and I was first exposed to this word arson, um, I guess when I was about three years old, so about my daughter Emerson's age. Um, and my mom was saying I was watching the news um, and they were reporting on like a house fire or something. 
They said they thought that arson was the cause of the fire. And apparently I turned to my mom and watching the news and I said, why don't they catch, who is arson and why don't they catch it? Um, because I was wondering why they were showing these house fires on the news and saying that, you know, arson might've been a cause. I thought arson was a person basically. Um, anyways, uh, most arsons are committed at night. Um, and looking at sort of, uh, behavioral profile of arsonists, they're likely to be single, poorly educated, to live alone and to be unemployed. Also, arsonists are mo more likely to have a Y chromosome. They're more likely to be committed by men. Um, men are four times more likely to commit arson than women in the United States. Uh, but interestingly, um, the proportion of arsons committed by women is increasing. Um, women that commit arson are disproportionately more likely to have been victims of sexual abuse. Um, also, most arsonists are young. Um, being juvenile is a risk factor. Um, only about 40% of arsons in the United States are con uh, committed by adults. So a large portion are committed by juveniles. Um, one thing that I found super entertaining in prepping for this episode is that uh, uh, arsonists and pyromaniacs are way more likely, disproportionately more likely to become firefighters themselves. Um, when I was prepping for this episode, I could not find as a risk factor listening to Ring of Fire by Johnny Cash, We Didn't Start the Fire by Billy Joel, Girl on Fire by Alicia Keys, um, Fire Burning on the Dance Floor by Sean Kingston, um, Set Fire to the Rain by Adele, um, Light My Fire by The Doors, or uh, Great Balls of Fire by Jerry Lee Lewis. Um, and I'm recording this episode in November, and uh, Jerry Lee Lewis passed away about two weeks ago. He had big-time Memphis tie-ins. Um, he lived in Walls, Mississippi, which is about 30 minutes south of Memphis. And um, very interesting character. Um, but those are some of the fire songs I was able to sort of brainstorm um, in, in prepping for this episode. Uh, I, I was sort of thinking, uh, musing to myself, I wonder if arsonists have like a, a, a fire-based playlist before or while they're committing their crimes. Um, arsonists... Uh, are not very likely to get caught in their crime. Um, I was surprised that only uh, 20% of arson cases in the United States are solved. So over 80% are, are unsolved. Um, and arson is a super easy crime to commit. You, you don't need a weapon. You don't need to really go out and buy anything. Another article that I found really, really helpful in prepping for this episode was Fire Setting, Psychopathology Theory and Treatment by Gannon and Pina. Uh, and they talk about uh, the diagnosis of pyromania more specifically than in the previous article. Um, and they so sort of separate pyromaniacs out into curious types um, that are, you know, have like scientific curiosity involving fire. And um, this is developmentally normative for a lot of children. Um, many children, especially boys, sort of go through a fire phase where they're fascinating by fire. And that doesn't qualify as pyromania. So you have the curious types, and then you also have the delinquent types that are sort of doing this more with malicious intent. Again, conduct disorder is a little bit of a rule out for pyromania. At, le at least pyromania has to be above and beyond what we would expect from conduct disorder or antisocial personality disorder. But I thought that distinction between curious types and delinquent types was really interesting. Um, this article also makes the distinction between uh, pure pyromania in which pyromania would be sort of the only presenting uh, disorder, or at least pyromania would be the primary diagnosis and not a secondary diagnosis. 
Um, and then pyromania is sort of uh, going along as comorbid or is secondary to another condition. And that first type of pyromania, that pure pyromania, is incredibly, incredibly rare. Uh, most And pyromania in general, uh, a diagnosis is really, really rare. Uh, but most of the time when pyromania is diagnosed, it's diagnosed in conjunction with or secondary to another disorder. Um, rarely is it only pyromania that's presenting. Uh, but again, a diagnosis of pyromania in itself is super, super rare. Um, uh, usually when pyromania is diagnosed, it's comorbid with substance use disorders, particularly alcohol use disorder. Um, we mentioned that uh, hallucinations or delusions or DSM-5 rule out for pyromania, uh, but fire setting is more common in people with schizophrenia. Uh, people with schizophrenia might be as high as 20 times more likely to commit arson than the general population. Um, I also found it um, interesting, kind of disturbing, that many people who commit arson have a history of suicide attempts. In fact, as many of, as half of people who commit arson might have suicide attempts. Um, and, you know, I mulled over this fact for a little bit, and it kind of made sense to me when I thought about the profile for many arsonists and many people with pyromania is to have low self-esteem, which we know is a risk factor for suicide attempts, and to have high impulsivity, which we also know is a risk factor for suicide attempts. So you combine that low self-esteem and high impulsivity, I can see why about half of people that commit arson or have pyromania um, have a history of suicide attempts. Um, it also makes sense that high impulsivity, um, when we think about pyromania as being an urge-based disorder. Again, uh, prior to the act of setting the fire, oftentimes um, there's tension or strong emotions, uh, the strong urge uh, before the act. Um, and it's so strong that I've heard some people argue that pyromania should maybe be considered as an addictive disorder, a substance-related and addictive disorder, and not um, in this family of sort of impulse control and conduct disorders, which I thought was a compelling argument. Um, when we think about addictions, right, we think about dopamine being involved, the neurotransmitter dopamine being involved. And um, unsurprisingly, dopamine is implicated in pyromania, uh, particularly dopamine interacting with glutamate. Maybe this is also akin to an obsessive compulsive and related disorder. I think you can make a compelling argument that should it, it should be an OCRD. Um, I've, in reading case studies about pyromania, um, I was sort of drawing a parallel with another impulse control disorder, uh, trichotillomania, where you have this tension before the act. Um, with trichotillomania, it would be hair pulling. With pyromania, it would be fire setting. You commit the act, and then it leads to tension reduction. Um, so maybe it should be an obsessive compulsive and related disorder. Maybe it should be an addiction. I don't know. Um, anyways, back to this Gannon and Pina article. Uh, most arsonists have at least one prior arrest. Um, and oftentimes this arrest is not related to fire setting. Um, but there is usually a criminal history uh, when somebody's arrested for, for arson. Um, there has been no link found to sexual psychopathology. So in uh, delving into the history of pyromania, um, Freud, and I guess we shouldn't be surprised that Freud would think about sex when thinking about pyromania. Um, he described pyromania as being like symbolically sexual in nature, and it's sort of a way to express your sexual deviance. Um, there is no uh, empirical evidence that that's where pyromania comes from, though, that, that, that um, 
pyromania is sexual in nature. Although I have read case studies of people describing uh, their obsession with fire as being almost sexual in nature, uh, but it's not a way to express your sexual deviance or whatever Freud was thinking. Um, all right, transitioning to treatment. Um, most behavioral therapies related to pyromania focus on relapse prevention uh, and tension reduction. But we don't really, I really didn't uh, see a very well established manualized treatment protocol for treating pyromania. Um, medicine wise, psychopharmaceutically, there's no FDA, no Federal Drug Administration approved medications for pyromania. However, um, there are a lot of psychiatrists that treat pyromania through seizure medication, uh, particularly topramate. Um, and topramate makes sense to me because it affects dopamine and glutamate. And sorry for that in the background if you have misophonia. Um, that was my dog Shadow. Uh, he somehow snuck into my, uh, my office upstairs and he's shaking his ears with his allergies and now he's scratching. Um, so in addition to dopamine and glutamate, serotonin might also be involved. Um, we don't have a great neurochemical hypothesis. Um, surprise, surprise, like many of the psychopathologies we talk about, we don't have a great neurochemical hypothesis for pyromania. We think, it, you know, dopamine and glutamate are involved and maybe serotonin. And since serotonin's maybe involved, a lot of psychiatrists will also prescribe uh, SSRI, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, um, to treat pyromania. Um, so that's pretty much it about pyromania. There's not that much out there. It's a very under-researched and rarely diagnosed disorder, um, but I enjoyed coming up with this episode. Um, thank you for the mailbag request, Mara. And speaking of mailbag, um, let's check the mailbag today. Um, and we have a mailbag email from Morgan. And Morgan says, hi, my name is Morgan. I listened to the podcast on Spotify. I graduated with a psych degree and absolutely loved school and learning. So this takes me back. Um, hopefully it takes you back in a good way and not in a traumatizing way. Um, Morgan had a question about play therapy. She asked, what are your thoughts on its effectiveness? When should it be used and when should it not? I took a course on it in grad school, was super interested, but there were not a lot of options to learn more in my area. And this kind of goes along with art therapy as well. And just these quote, quote, different therapies in general. And by different, I mean, just not like your standard talk therapy. I get what you mean, Morgan. Um, so what are your thoughts? And then she goes on. She says, also, for anyone interested in working with children in this field, I recommend the book titled Dibs in Search of Self by Virginia Axline. Very interesting and honestly heart-wrenching. Thank you. Um, so that's Morgan's email. And I'd be happy to do an episode on play therapy and then maybe also do another episode on art therapy. Um, a lot of my advisees uh, at Christian Brothers are really interested in art therapy. We have two art therapy classes that, kids are, that students can take. I don't know that much about art therapy myself, so it would be an opportunity for me to learn. And I'm also happy to talk about play therapy too. Uh, so those could be some uh, future episode ideas. And you can send me episode ideas, feedback, criticism, questions, whatever, to ctayloo41 at cbu.edu, and I'll try to get back to you. Just put in the subject line, mailbag. And it doesn't matter if mailbag's one word, two words. I don't know if mailbag's technically one word, two words. I don't know. Um, but on that note, I am going to try to figure out why my dogs are itching um, and answer some emails. So until the next episode, take care and stay well.